Welcome to Health Equity Conversations, a series focused on understanding healthcare payment, equity, and how payment can be used to address inequities rather than perpetuate or worsen them. In today's conversation, I speak with Dr. Utibe Essien. Utibe is an internal medicine physician and assistant professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. He received his MD from Albert Einstein College of Medicine and trained in internal medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He also completed a research fellowship and received a Master of Public Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. An equity researcher, Utibe's work focuses on racial disparities in the use of novel medications and technologies in the management of cardiovascular disease. He helped introduce the concept of pharmacoequity, providing a new framework to achieving equitable access to care, which he has applied to a range of clinical conditions in his work. Utibe and I discussed pharmacoequity and a range of issues related to the quality and payment for therapeutic care. I enjoyed the discussion and hope you will as well. Dr. Utibe Essien, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. I appreciate it. So lots to get into. Could you begin by sharing a bit about your background and the journey you had to your current research career? Absolutely. So I am an assistant professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine uh, here at UCLA. And uh, it's definitely been a journey to get out west. I'm a New Yorker, born, raised, schooled, uh, as I like to say, um, and child of Nigerian immigrants. Um, So my parents met there before they came out to the States. Um, uh, My dad's a primary care doc. And so I think in some way put the medicine bug in uh, in me and my three siblings. I'm the only one who chose this this esteemed career. Uh, but at, you know, growing up, I didn't really think medicine was going to be for me. He was working way too hard. He's um, had to replace repeat residency rather here in the states. And so, you know, that struggle is uh, pretty real. Uh, but after getting a chance to work with him and as a primary care doc, seeing the impact he had in his community. Um, I was like, this seems awesome. Like, this feels like a really great way to um, make a difference in the world, as, as cliche as it sounds. So ended up going down that pathway, um, was a, a pre-med at NYU in New York City and volunteered in the emergency department at Bellevue Hospital in the city and kind of had my first experiences around um, unjust or inequitable care, um, really seeing um, immigrant patient populations, homeless individuals, um, really using that emergency department, which is where I volunteered as their primary source of primary care. Uh, I think that was the first time that um, I was seeing this um, kind of a juxtaposition, so to speak, of, of healthcare being provided. Um, but, you know, what's going on I was way too focused on being a pre-med student, getting the MCATs done, all that um, good stuff. And had the opportunity to train at Albert Einstein in the Bronx. Um, and, you know, fast forward to going through the preclinical years into the clinical years. And again, kind of saw that juxtaposition when we'd rotate through our different hospitals in third year, uh, where some years, uh, some rotations would be at the public hospital where we would not really see a lot of resources for our patients. I would be doing all the blood cultures and running uh, labs downstairs um, versus when we rotated to private hospitals where you'd see family members lining up at the bedside and patients asking, you know, why is there a student in the room with me? 
uh, and again, just very different care settings. And so I think those experiences really got me into this health equity uh, space. Um, and then again, fast forward through to residency, I had a chance to train in Boston uh, as a primary care resident, following my dad's footsteps um, out in Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is a city out in Eastern Boston, um, largely Spanish speaking immigrant population. And again, kind of seeing this, this, uh, this gap, this juxtaposition um, between who had access to care when we were rotating in the hospital across the bridge in Boston versus when I would go out to my community health center. Um, and the thing that really stuck out to me, I think, was when I got to residency, I thought, you know, all my training, all my experience, I'm going to be this like social justice warrior guy who finally gets helps my patients get the care they need. Um, but there's just so much more <laughs> than me just being able to prescribe a the right prescription or um, recommend the right screening for my patients. Uh, they just had so much more in their lives to be able to get the best care. Um, and a lot of that was just based on who they were, whether again, it was because of their primary language they spoke at home, because of their ability to make wealth, because of their jobs, because of their immigration status. Um, and that's just continued to drive the work that I do, the specific research I do around cardiovascular disease, the work I do around social determinants, work I do as we'll talk about around pharmacal equity. Um, and I, I think that's kind of the journey that it's been so far. Um, hopefully there's still a lot more to that story uh, in five, 10 years when we get on another podcast one day. For sure. I'm going to hold you to that. As you alluded to, an important concept in your work is pharmacal equity. So for those who may not be as familiar, could you explain it? And some implications of achieving or not achieving pharmacal equity? As I mentioned, this has kind of become one of the primary focuses of my work, um, really thinking about patients getting uh, access to the care that they need. And we define this term as uh, ensuring that all patients, regardless of race, ethnicity, social class, um, access to resources, um, has equitable and affordable access to the highest quality medications they need to manage their health conditions. Um, and again, as you mentioned, alluded to in your primary care experiences, mine as well, um, we just see time and time again that so many patients do not have that access and that so much of it is based on access to resources, is based on bias and care, um, as sadly study after study has shown. Um, and so we argued in a piece that we published a couple or a year ago now in JAMA that we really can achieve that goal and that achieving it will help us uh, reduce health disparities. Um, I think a lot of the work around health equity is focused on addressing social determinants like housing and food, um, is improving access to insurance, um, is getting patients to have not live in um, healthcare deserts or pharmacy deserts, as we might talk about a little bit more. Um, but even when patients make it through all those steps, they, they fight the challenges around food insecurity, around homelessness, around bias and care, that there's still those who come into the clinics, who come into the hospitals, um, and who walk out without the same level of care as folks who look a different way or who have access to different resources. And so really that's the goal is that that should not exist when folks make it to us in the health system. Um, and sadly, study after study has shown that it does. And I, I think the implications for not achieving pharmacal equity, I'll start there, is that we'll continue to have an unequal health system. We'll continue to have a health system that um, uh, unfortunately produces a two to three year gap in life expectancy 
between white and black Americans, white and Hispanic Americans, um, and even wider when we look uh, compare between white and American Indian Alaskan Native individuals. Um, we'll continue to have disproportionate rates of cardiovascular disease, of um, cancers. Um, of course, over the last few years, we can't have a conversation without talking about COVID, right? And so those are the implications for not achieving um, this goal. And I do think, again, and hopefully we'll get to talk, get into it, that if we do achieve it, a broad approach to doing so, we can actually really start to make some dents in, uh, in achieving health equity. One thing I appreciated in the work I think you're describing is the multi-level nature of what you're saying. You know, there's insurance coverage, and then there's physical geographic access to pharmacies. There's what happens in the four walls of pharmacies and, and physicians' clinics and hospitals. There's multiple things here. Let's go back out to the community because I think often this is a concept that's invoked when we talk about social drivers of health and social determinants. Many individuals' health needs often require bridging between healthcare and community organizations and settings. And so investing in those place-based programs, you know, those, and I think you alluded to a few in your piece, barbershops, salons, churches, et cetera, is important. And so this is often easier said though than done. And so what type of community investments might best promote pharmacoequity in your mind? Yeah, I think it's it's a hugely important question because um, some may say, you know, just get everyone insured and we'll be able to address pharmacoequity. And I think that's part of the solution. Absolutely. We still have 20, 30 million Americans who are uninsured. We still have states that have not expanded Medicaid to help those who are low income, um, of low income backgrounds. But the actual card does not quite get the patient, the medication that they need in every case, right? But doesn't get the um, patient or community member the knowledge around these new therapies that are available or um, the, the, the guidelines or the recommendations for whatever their conditions are. And I think that's where those community-based, the place-based programs you alluded to, Josh, um, come in. Uh, and I think that's that's where we can really invest. And um, and I, I will I've been spending a lot of time trying to pivot a little bit from saying that health systems need to be the only primary investor in that. Uh, I think health systems have a lot of roles, including ensuring that we are um, uh, non-biased providers of care. Um, but I do think we have to look beyond the hospitals and beyond the clinics to be able to also go out to the barbershops, salons, churches, um, um, schools to make sure that patients are getting equitable care. We have to trust that um, our policymakers, uh, the corporations that um, are benefiting from the work of the community, both the physical work and the financial work, um, are also um, being involved in these key investments. Uh, and so I think, yes, on the health system side, we can get creative about that. Um, but in my mind, we have to really start to push our, our policymakers. And I think this is a lot of the work that you're doing as well, Josh, to um, see this as a priority and really start to invest deeply in it. There's a saying that not everything that can be measured matters and not everything that matters can be measured. What are we measuring currently in the U.S. with respect to the quality of therapeutic care that you think could help intervene and or track or even report on improvements in equity? Yeah, it's a great question. And so I think what we are measuring right now is who gets what. So we have a patient who has a, for example, I study atrial fibrillation. We have a patient who has an AFib diagnosis. Um, we know what their risks are of developing a stroke and who needs to be on a blood thinner. Um, 
we have that information. We can look through, uh, insert your favorite electronic health record system and see that information. Um, and we've gotten really good at that, right? Over the last couple of decades, the um, calls for improving quality of care, we've gotten the VA where I practice a chief um, resident in quality and safety. We have these vice chairs, deans, et cetera, of quality of, um, and safety. Um, and so we've gotten really good at that, but how do we pivot it to the equity space? And I think the reason we haven't been as smooth in that pivot is, A, until a couple of years ago, in some spaces, that has not necessarily been a priority. Obviously, the pandemic um, and the conversations around racism as a public health issue have really highlighted health inequities um, in ways that, again, I'm, we're obviously earlier in our career, but I imagine just from talking to my dad and other mentors, we just haven't seen before. Um, uh, so I think that's a big reason why we're having this conversation more. And then the fact that it's been so challenging to actually collect data on race and ethnicity. So that's um, not the all be all end all pharmacoequity, but that's a key place where we see differences in care, right? Um, and so whether it's the concerns around the collection of those data, you know, what are you doing with this information? We have a health system, sadly, that has a legacy of um, uh, experimentation, especially around research. Just yesterday was the 50th, um, you know, I, I hate to use the word anniversary, but it was 50 years since the U.S. syphilis study took place. Um, and so that legacy is still there embedded within our systems, right? So people worry about reporting their date, race, ethnicity data, don't want to do it. Uh, we have, again, who is considered white versus Asian versus Black has changed so much over the last centuries. Um, so to really know what to do with that information. Um, but I think now is the time for us to really get as, as creative, as nuanced, as um, diligent as possible um, in reporting data around race and ethnicity, especially when it comes to these quality metrics that every health system should be able to know how they're doing and treating hypertension and treating diagnosis like AFib and treating pneumonia um, and who is leaving the hospital with the appropriate medical care. Uh, and I think that that will be a measure that will really help us to be able to track pharmacoequity down the line. You bring up a very important thing, which is I think most, if not all of us would agree, we need better data, but the type of data we really want and need are often the kinds that are sensitive, yep. that have a history of distrust, Mm -hmm. They're also labor intensive to gather those things. Mm -hmm. Having sat in a clinic and tried to watch that happen, you know, it's, it's not the easiest. Which leads to this other discussion about why don't we use area level measures alongside individual level measures. And I think there's something to be said about both sides of that argument. When you're thinking about pharmacoequity, how do you think about that? The gaps in the data? Do you think it's getting better individual data? Do you think it's area level data and not the aspirational endpoint, but what's next to practically make the next step? I think what's next first is not um, allowing the limited data to hold us back. So I've heard arguments over the last two years that have said, well, you know, the data aren't clean enough. They're, they're not ready for prime time, so to speak. So let's just skip these questions. Let's focus on something else, something where the data are better. Uh, and I think that's dangerous, right? Like we know that there are problems, they're hidden in some of the missing data that we have, especially around, like we mentioned, race and ethnicity. Um, so for us to just completely let that go, I think gets really, um, re really dangerous. And then we miss, we end up missing out and potentially widening disparities down the road. 
Um, so not saying <laughs> to let it go. Uh, I do think we should be doing both. So the efforts around the, again, going back to policy, the government around U.S. Census data collection, like those are huge teams that got dampened by COVID, sadly. But um, if we reflect back on 2010, like, there are teams that went out there and got into the neighborhoods, went out to um, reservations, um, drove out to rural communities, really committed to getting that data right. Uh, and I think that that's what we have to do as well. I think in the same way we want our brilliant scientists in her lab dissecting every mouse possible and finding every cell to target that one cancer that um, can change the world forever. That's the same way that we have to get creative with these um, health services methods. Uh, they, they haven't been as um, you know exotic or Nobel Prize-y <laughs> over the last um, several decades, but these are the ones that are going to like change and transform communities and, and uh, like you said, neighborhoods and the lives of individuals themselves. And um, I think we can continue to push uh, to get that data to be as precise as possible. We're not there yet, like you said. I think the area level um, area level analyses such as neighborhood deprivation um, are huge and really helpful right now. Uh, and I think they can inform us about a lot, uh, especially because we know when we talk about race and ethnicity, for example, that so much of um, the area level uh, outcomes such as segregation, um, such as wealth, such as education have been based on um, racial differences um, in access and wealth, et cetera. So they do give us a really helpful proxy. Um, and I think it, those, are, those are a helpful place to start while we're waiting for the individual level data to get more precise. Well, you, as you may know, you know, my work is really around payment, not to say payment's the only motivator, but it certainly drives a lot of what happens and doesn't happen in healthcare. And so, you know, you mentioned prescription drug costs, and they are certainly incredibly important. And yet, as you know, they don't exist in a vacuum, right? They exist alongside other costs. So take a step back. How do you think payment methods, and in particular, value-based payments that at least aspire to engage clinicians in a way that drive good outcomes, how do these payments figure into pharmacal equity? Yeah, that's a, I think that sounds like our future paper, Josh. Um, <laughs> I think for me, the opportunity to take the funds, the resources that we're using on drugs to really invest in the social drivers of health is how I've been thinking about it. Um, I, again, giving talks around pharmacal equity, folks say, well, is it really all about drugs? There's a communities who don't want to take medications and are like, keep your drugs to yourself. I'm going to do my thing with my family. Um, there are others who are really so directly focused on if we don't get folks housing, it doesn't matter that they can't take their DOAC. It doesn't matter that um, they aren't able to get to a clinic to get their um, um, chemotherapy infusion. Um, but I think that what the amount of money that we're spending on drugs, on um, pharmaceuticals, and again, the lists go on in terms of the data around that, can be so shifted to focusing on these social drivers to help um, us as a health system get way more creative than we can be now just because of again, what many others are more expert in the, the, the balance books, like there's not enough opportunity, not enough funding there to um, be able to build the shelter that each hospital may want to build when we're struggling with getting patients discharged from the hospital um, who are housing insecure um, while we're spending so much of the effort and money on these medications. So that's, I think, one of the ways that we can get uh, more creative with the payment structure is being able to shift funding from the medications themselves 
Um, obviously, there's been some recent policy, including with the Inflation Reduction Act, for a very small group of patients um, that will hope to hopefully help us at least start to think about how do we negotiate for drugs as, federal, as a federal government, drug pricing, um, what happens when there's caps on certain drugs as well as caps on out-of-pocket spending, and how patients start to behave when those um, cost limits are there. I think are really going to teach us a lot about the future of payment and payment um, um, structures and pharmaco equity. We've talked about a lot. I'll wrap up with one final question. We've covered a lot of ground talking about kind of foundational things like physically having access, insurance coverage. We've talked about things that happen between patients and their clinicians, talked about place-based programs in the community. Based on your work, what are one or two things you think if change would yield the biggest improvements in equity as well as outcomes for historically marginalized communities? You know, I've been thinking about this, that continuum for a bit and like, where do we actually like plant the flag in it? Whether it's all the way at the beginning, again, thinking about drug patents and why certain companies can continue to extend those time after time, even when um, there are plenty of drugs available, plenty of generic options available outside of our country. Um, whether it's the like clinical trial diversity and how using that information and sending it to the communities can help the communities be more informed, more empowered to, to get the right treatment or going back to the providers and really letting clinicians and our colleagues know, like, these are the data and this is how we can improve. Um, for me, I think it's always going to be about making the right choice, the easy choice. So, you know, I, I'm thinking a little bit early, further down the continuum, um, for us as providers, so those who are listening on the call who are practicing tomorrow, so I'll give that answer and then the bigger or upstream answer. Um, I think until our electronic medical records or whatever systems that we're using in our systems um, don't really allow us <laughs> to give a non-guideline based, non-high quality medication to the patient in front of us, regardless of their insurance status, regardless of what they look like. Um, what language they speak at home, that we're going to continue to see and have these subjective decisions. These, you know, I, I think they were pretty unsteady last time we gave them a, a medication. I worry that they weren't really being compliant on this therapy. Um, when the right choice is the easy choice, I think we help eliminate disparities. And whether that's through nudges, through EHR-based tools, um, that's practice alerts, um, that I think really is going to help us as clinicians get rid of some of our subjective biases that end up, I think, extending and widening disparities. Um, again, that said, we also know on the flip side, a lot of the really meaningful conversations that we're having with our patients around their inability to afford medications. It, it may not make it into the EHR, no, and so in my, and nor might it make it to these large database studies that we lead. But we know that those conversations end up being why we don't provide medications or we don't prescribe medications to certain patients. And when there are groups in our country uh, who have significantly lower proportions of wealth uh, compared to others in the country, um, the opportunity to pay $100, $500 a month for a prescription is just not available to them. And I think that those are getting more further, way further upstream where we actually start to deal with some of these wealth inequities in our um, society. I do think that the health system has a cool role that they can play in that and serving as an anchor institution and actually infusing funding and resources into our communities. Um, whether care pay payment structures and plans help <laughs> to address that, I think that's to be seen in the future. 
Uh, and I think there's probably a lot of cool opportunities to get creative there. Um, but I think in reducing wealth in the nation, especially for the most marginalized communities, um, and us as clinicians being able to make the right choice, the easy choice, um, will really help start getting us closer to pharmaco equity. Utibe, thank you again for joining us. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for helping to amplify this topic. Um, and I'm excited to just keep brainstorming ideas again, we, both individually together, but also with folks who are thinking about payment and equity and um, clinical care. It's an exciting time. <laughs>